Thanks for joining Stanford Youth Solutions and Sierra Forever Families inaugural episode of Resource Families Thrive. My name is Daniel. I'm a recruitment specialist in the Pathways to Permanency program, and I'm going to be your host today. I have been with this agency for about seven years now in a number of capacities. I have done skills training with our kids that are transition age, so 15 to 21. I have also done behavior support for some of our kids in our specialized programs. And I have spent the last few years doing recruitment and outreach to find resource families. My hope is that we can tell you about our foster care program, foster care in general, that we can share stories from our kids, our families, and my colleagues, and that we can give you some helpful tips along the way. Stanford Youth Solutions and Sierra Forever Families is a merged organization with a combined 140 years of experience. We provide services to the greater Sacramento region in California, and we do many things that support our mission, which is transforming lives by nurturing permanent connections and empowering families to solve challenges together so every child can thrive. We have locations in Auburn, Grass Valley, Sacramento, Citrus Heights, and Woodland. Stanford Youth Solutions was founded in 1900 by Leland Stanford and his wife, Jane Lathrop Stanford. They left the home to be run as an orphanage, which was called the Lathrop Memorial Home for Friendless Children, and that was run by the Sisters of Social Service. Through eminent domain, the mansion was repossessed by the state of California, and the home became a community-based organization called Stanford Home for Children, which did include group homes and a private school. By 2007, the group home and school were closed, and that was in favor of family-based settings. We are a research-based agency, and research indicates that kids do better in a family-based setting, including foster care. In 2012, Stanford Home became Stanford Youth Solutions. The Permanent Family Connections program has seen most of our kids go back to their family, usually mom or dad. Sierra Forever Families was founded in 1982 and has an outstanding record of matching kids in need with permanent families. They have numerous programs that ensure that kids have strong and permanent connections within the community. And in case you didn't notice, you're going to hear the word permanent a lot because that is our ultimate goal, is ensuring that kids have somewhere that they can call their own. Sierra Forever Families Permanency Unit recruits, trains, and supports resource families as they develop loving relationships with kids in their care and have specialized in adoption across the years. They do also have a program called Destination Family, and that supports kids with at least one barrier to adoption so they can find a home. In this case, a barrier to adoption can mean special needs. It could be that the child is a little bit too old. Uh, it could be that there are multiple kids, that it's a sibling set. They also had the Wonder Mentors, and they are matched one-on-one -on -one with a child so that they can share experiences through art, music, sports, outdoor activities, camping events. And in the 2017 and 2018 fiscal year, Sierra Forever Families finalized 150 adoptions, saw 97 children matched with mentors, and served 132 kids in the Destination Family Program. They also have ties to the Dave Thomas Foundation through a program called Wendy's Wonderful Kids, and the youth permanency worker, Sandy Certain, has finalized over 100 adoptions to date. In 2019, they acquired Cross Creek Family Counseling in Citrus Heights so they could better serve youth and families through therapeutic services. Through our recent merger, we became a combined program called Pathways to Permanency. 
Pathways to Permanency focuses on guiding families in their journey to support kids in finding stability and finding permanency. What that means is quite a few of our kids do still return to their birth families, and we call that reunification. But we are also an organization which supports adoptions. Our focus is making sure that we can work with kids, with their families, with kinship, um, people who are connected to a child in some way to ensure that child has consistency. We support birth parents and other family members by making sure that they're able to visit with their kids as allowed by a case plan. And when needed, we do support kids going into guardianship or adoption through our families. They also have access to services, which include several different types of therapy, behavior support, and crime intervention services. Our family partners and our youth advocates use their lived experiences to help families and youth navigate mental health and foster care systems, so that way we can ensure every child can thrive and reach their fullest potential. When you decide it's time to start your journey of becoming a resource parent, there are several people with whom you'll be in touch. I've asked some of them to join me today so that you can get to know them and what it means to be part of the foster care system. So one of the first people that you might wind up talking to when you call in asking about foster care is Erin. Hello, Erin. Hello, Daniel. Tell us what it's like when you get an inquiry, when you get a phone call, email, something like that. How do you make contact with the family? Um, well, usually when people call, they're first just really exploring this process, and so they're not quite sure what foster care adoption is about, but they're at least interested enough or they've heard from a friend or a family member who might have gone through this process or they just kind of did general research online. So we really get um, different people calling in, some single applicants, some couples, and a lot of times they're very much in that exploratory part of the process where they just want to get basic information and kind of know where do I even start and just kind of want to know what the first steps are. I'm sure that everyone has that immediate question on their mind. How do people qualify to be a foster parent? What are like the initial door opening qualifications? Um, great question, Daniel. Starting off, you need to be minimally 18 years old per California state regulations, but our agency standard is 21. You do need to go through a thorough background check clearance process. You do have to go through 12 hours of upfront training, and the first two hours is an orientation class where we kind of cover the basics of this process and kind of the steps. And then it's an additional 10 hours of training. And you also have to be CPR and first aid certified. And those are some of the just basic requirements. And how often do you have families come in that are actually looking at multiple agencies at the same time? Quite a bit, actually. In fact, we encourage families to at least seek out a couple different orientations just so that they can really get a sense of what agency is going to be the best fit for them in terms of level of service, um, the type of case management that's provided, and um, really just kind of the culture of the agency because you can go through uh, different foster family agencies or you can also become a resource parent with the individual county that you live in. So, you know, here in Sacramento, you can go and research doing uh, foster care and or foster to adopt through Sacramento County. Yeah, I know we've got about 30 agencies, give or take, in Sacramento County alone. So it's worthwhile to kind of shop around and ask a lot of questions. Yeah, definitely. 
How long do people think about foster care before they actually get in touch with you? It really does vary, but I think for most people, they have been thinking about it for years. That's usually the feedback that people tell me is like, oh, this is something that's been on my mind for a really long time. Or, you know, my partner and I have been thinking about this or thinking about ways we want to give back to our community. Or some people, it roots even back to like childhood or growing up and maybe someone in their own um, family did foster care or someone else they know did foster to adopt. And so it really does vary, but I do think, generally speaking, most people have been thinking about it for quite a long time, and then it just kind of, they need to take the the leap, if you will, to kind of make that call or send the email and just kind of figure out if it's a good fit. When you're on that first call with a family, what are a lot of them looking for? Like, what kids are they looking for? What are they looking to do? Why do people call you? I think a lot of our families that inquire have experience some level of infertility. So there is a whole kind of subset of couples who come forward who were unable to conceive naturally on their own. And so a lot of those families are looking for younger children, um, younger age range, but some are open to sibling sets and open. We, we always encourage families to be open to sibling sets because it's such a need. So get a lot of those families, but we also do get a lot of people who just see the need in their community and they want to come forward and meet that need. And those families are obviously really necessary as well so that they can provide either temporary care, emergency placement, so a home that would be responsive like as soon as children are removed and they need a place to, a safe place to land and and provide that that safe, supportive structure within a home setting. So we really get, it really does vary the different types of families that we get and that who call for this process. But I would say generally that a lot of families are coming to us because they want to build their family through foster adoption. So you start with the families, you talk to them from the very beginning. How long do you have the family on your caseload? Like how long are you working with that particular family? Well, I do work, yeah, I work with all the families on the front end because I also, I didn't describe this, I do the upfront assessment, but I also help all the families with all the application paperwork that's required. And there's so there's a set of documents that we need to collect and process from them. So my time with the families on my caseload until they get assigned to a social worker for the home study. So I guess about uh, two to four months depending on, again, how quickly the families get through the paperwork. So the question that I'm going to ask everybody is, what is the big need to know for any family that's thinking about this, that that they need to know as they get started, as they pick up that phone and give you a call? Hmm. Because I think when they when they first call, they, they I guess they just need to be open to learn. They need to be very flexible and know that with this process, there are many things that we have complete control over. And so, you know, if you're the kind of person that needs to know what's going to happen, you know, throughout your entire day or just, you know, in the next five years, then you might have to take a step back a little bit and understand that there's parts of the court process and there's parts of working with the child welfare system that are going to be very difficult to navigate and you have to 
trust that the professionals at the agency are working with you to help you cope through some of those unknowns and have that kind of flexibility and know that it's because our kids need that type of flexibility. They need, you know, safety and structure and consistency and parenting is really hard and vulnerable. So I guess it's a lot of different things that they need, but (laughs) it's just things to kind of have in the back of your mind and then just willingness to be teachable. That's really the most important part is that, you know, there's it's a lot of support at the agency, whether it's your case manager directly who's working with you or through the trainings that we offer. Well, I really appreciate your time, Erin. Thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing your experiences and, and all this information. Yeah, no problem. Give me a call. The next person that you'll probably wind up meeting in this process is Katrina. So hello there. Hi, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So where are you at in this process? When do people meet you? I get assigned to a family at the time when the family is also assigned to a home study social worker. Okay, so they've got two people going at the same time. Yes. And what is your specific role? My specific role is the approval specialist. And I am the person that goes out and does the walkthrough of the family's home. I make sure that they meet licensing regulations and that there are certain documents that are submitted to me and tracked throughout their time with Stanford Sierra. And I know from my experience, your stage in the process is probably where people are going to have like a billion questions and they're going to start feeling a little uncomfortable because you're going to their houses. That is correct. Typically, I schedule an appointment to go to a family's house, and the family will call me or email me prior to that appointment with several questions. It's, it can be uncomfortable having someone go out to your home and walk through your bedroom, your bathroom, you know, your personal space. Mm-hmm. So families are usually um, pretty either apprehensive or um, nervous about me coming to their home. When you go out to a home, do you expect to see it like 100% clean, like you can eat off the floor and like (laughs) it's just all sparkling? No, actually. I just expect the home to be safe and to meet licensing regulations. So that's um, that's a misunderstanding that some parents and families have. They think that their home needs to be immaculate prior to me coming out. And that's actually not the case. My job is just to make sure that the environment is safe that they have certain things that are required for community care licensing, such as uh, smoke detectors that are working, carbon monoxide detectors, a first aid kit, fire extinguishers that meet standard, which are the ABC fire extinguishers, Mm -hmm. that their water is set at the correct temperature, depending on the age range, that they have outlet covers and baby gates to maintain safety for toddlers and infants, I also make sure that the um, bedroom meets regulation. Each bedroom has to have an operating window, window covering. Each bedroom needs to be um, appropriate to accommodate a child. And by that, I mean have a bed and a closet and a door for privacy. So those are the things that I'm primarily focusing on. You do the home walkthrough, all of that, and then you also are important in some of the document collection. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Each of our families need to have a valid driver's license that is current, a annual driving record 
that shows that they do not have any discrepancies on their driving reports, such as DUIs or if their license has been suspended, the driver's license wouldn't show that. It would be the DMV report that would verify that. Also, families need to have homeowners or renters insurance that are current. They need to have a reliable vehicle that is also insured and current. And families need to, need to complete first aid and CPR trainings. If the family has a swimming pool on their property, they will also need to take a water safety course. Is there anything else with swimming pools? If a family has a swimming pool on the property, that swimming pool should be either fenced or appropriately covered to maintain the safety of a child. You know, I just, I'm thinking about all the possibilities of things that people might have in their mm -hmm. homes. What about pets? Like, are there dogs that we have to watch out for? Or mm -hmm. Like, pets that aren't allowed? <laughs> We've had parents that have had a variety of pets in their home. The only requirements for pets is that if you have a cat or a dog, that they are rabies vaccinated and that they are overall in good health to be around a child. They're not aggressive or they're not, um, they don't have any issues with biting or could harm a, a child. Once a family is approved, do they see you again? Do you continue to work with them? How does that look? Great question. I do continue to work with the family throughout their entire time with Sierra. So that means up until the family finalizes, I stay in contact with that family. Even though the initial walkthrough is complete, I need to make sure that all of their approval documents are current and maintained throughout the year and a family has an annual recertification a year from the date that I approve their home. Like if their driver's license is going to expire or like their auto insurance, they have to make sure to get those documents to us. Yes, and I, I make it easy for our families. I send them out a reminder 90 days in advance. If I do not receive an update prior to it expiring, I send another update 45 days in advance. I'll give a family a call and let them know you're your insurance is going to expire next week. Please get that to me before it expires. So my job is not to um, rule a family out for not having something submitted or out of order. My job is to help the family to remain in compliance. So I support the family through this process. What would you say is the, like the biggest need to know for any family as they get involved with this process, as they meet you, as they meet the other people? I would say a big takeaway for um, the approval is for families to know that it's my objective to make sure that your home is safe for a child to be placed and not to rule you out from moving forward with foster care or providing permanency for a child. I'm here to support and to teach you what standards and regulations are and to help you meet those standards and regulations. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time today and for sharing all of your insights and, and your knowledge about some of these state regulations. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. At Stanford Youth Solutions and Sierra Forever Families, we do a variety of trauma-informed trainings, and we strongly encourage all of our families to complete as many as they can. They can use these skills that they learn to best support kids. Every now and then, we'll share some tips with you, and hopefully you'll learn something new. So the first thing I want to ask is how you feel when you get angry, frustrated, or scared. If you're anything like me, it's like fog gets into your head and you can't think as much. 
Sometimes we have to take a moment to breathe to get ourselves back into a thinking mode again before we can talk to kids in a supportive and helpful way. And so to help you to do that, I want you to ask yourself four questions. Number one is, what am I feeling right now? So how does your body feel? Do you feel hot? Do you feel sweaty, twitchy? Are you scared, angry, or confused? So how does your body feel physically, and how do you feel emotionally? Question two is, what does the child feel, need, or want? Everything they're doing is telling you about those things, and it's up to you as the adult to figure out what that might be. The third question is, how is the environment affecting the child? The lights could be too bright. There might be too, uh, too much noise. It might be too cold, or they could be hungry or tired. All of those things are going to make it so that a challenge is more or less likely to occur, depending on how they're feeling. And the fourth question is, how do I best respond? Remember, in any given moment with any child, it's up to you to be the adult. If nothing else, remind yourself, I am the adult. Especially because when we do get angry, scared, confused, frustrated, adrenaline gets into our system and we can't think as clearly. So you have to remind yourself the best way that you can respond is going to be a way that reduces stress and minimizes risk. So when in doubt, ask yourself those four questions. What am I feeling right now? What does the child feel, need, or want? How is the environment affecting the child? And how do I best respond? So our next guest today is Natalie. Natalie, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Natalie Lambden, and I am the intake social worker for our Pathways to Permanency program, specifically for our traditional foster homes. What's a traditional foster home? So those are our homes that will support a variety of placements, whether that is reunification with birth parents or our intensive service foster youth or the new program that we launched, our therapeutic foster care program. There are quite a few kids that you see. Like, Do you meet all the kids, or do you really just talk to the families? So I meet all of the kids that eventually come into our program. I don't meet every child that is referred to us. I wouldn't have time for that. How many kids are referred every month, or like every week? Oh, a, a week's probably a better estimate. I'd say we probably get about at least five referrals a day. Not the not new referrals every mm -hmm. time. Some are for kids that are continuing to need placement because they're at um, what's now what the used to be called a group home and is now called a short-term residential treatment placement or an STRTP. Gotcha. Tell me about the process a little bit. So like, how do you get referrals? And then what do you do once you have the referral? How do parents get the kids in their homes? So I get emails and phone calls from various county partners. I will assess whether we have a home that could fit the child's needs. And if I feel like it's a potential match, I then approach the parent, ask them if they have any follow-up questions. Sometimes we don't get the most information from the county, so I have to do some clinical assessment to get the information to see, you know, is this child on the reunification track? What does their treatment plan look like? What services do they need? Do they have them, or are we going to have to refer them? 
and does the parent have the skills to meet those needs. Best practices, we do a pre-placement visit. The pre-placement that goes well and everyone agrees we can move forward with placement in the home. So you kind of have to do a lot of investigative work even before you get to like that pre-placement side of things. Kind of on an, on an offshoot, I know that I've done a couple of pre-placement visits where it seemed like it went really, really well, and then the parents decided later that they didn't want to take in the kiddos. I know for them, they just kind of didn't feel it in their gut, is what they told me. How do you kind of work through that with families? I would never want a parent to feel not invested out of the gate. These kids can take a lot of your time and energy and support. So if it's not working at the start, I don't anticipate it working later on down the road. And we don't want our kids to feel like they are not fully accepted for who they are and what they need. So at that point, I just really validate that they're insightful, that they know what they can do for these kids and they know what they can't do. And that it's okay and we're going to move on to a new referral. And then I loop in the county as needed that we're not going to move forward with placement. How long does the average family wind up waiting for a kiddo? Once they get approved, once they get their certificate, like how long before they get a phone call? So it depends on what age they're looking for to support. It depends on how flexible they are with the types of behaviors they are comfortable working through with a youth. So if you want a teenage girl, I can pretty much place you tomorrow. (laughs) And obviously our our younger kids, you might be waiting a while for that one. We try and keep engagement by touching base with the family, but it's really dependent on what their skills are and what they're willing to support. Mm -hmm. If we're getting like five referrals a day, where would you say the biggest needs are? Who do do we need more homes for? Typically that would be our uh, teen girls or really girls over the age of 10 that need placement and the other portion of that would be our ISFCs or our intensive service foster youth that we really need to target and recruit for those populations. I know I haven't really had a chance to explain ISFC to people yet and and that's come up a couple times so I want to circle back around. What is ISFC in a nutshell? I mean I know but I want to I want to hear you explain it. So ISFC, or Intensive Service Foster Care, is for um, our youth who have higher needs. So that means they might have a serious mental illness or um, have and, and then and have ensuing behaviors that put them at risk for group home placements or hospitalization. And this is a way to designate that these kids need specially trained foster homes and increased support from the agency. So if a youth is placed in an ISFC home and they are approved for the ISFC rate, they will get increased support from their social worker and a support counselor to work on behaviors that are outlined in the treatment plan. This also means that they might have intensive mental health treatment by wraparound or our FIT program and a CASA or a mentor, things like that. So it increases the amount of time the foster parent spends in treatment team meetings and coordinating services for the youth and then they have to continue to do uh, more trainings per year to get uh, to continue to meet that standard. Yeah, it's definitely not for the faint of heart but it's also not every child that we get into our program. 
No, actually, in our homes in this that are ISFC approved are are shrinking for permanency reasons, which is great. The kids in those homes are staying in those homes and eventually going into guardianship or adoption with those parents, and that's what we want. And then the the flip side of that is training up our parents or recruiting people that have experience with intense behaviors and intense needs that we can continue to meet those needs because as we know the uh, amount of beds in short-term residential treatment placements are, are dwindling. The last thing that I want to talk about, since you talk with a lot of families, you you meet a lot of kids, what would you say the biggest need to know is for anyone that's thinking about foster care? What's what's the like the big thing that will really kind of help them out? The biggest thing I think is it's not like the movies portray it, and I mean that in a good way. It's it's very rewarding. You get to have a healing relationship with a child or, you know, help them reunify with family. You get to help their birth parents gain those skills that they need to support the kids that they have. So it's very intrinsically motivating, and that's not to say it's not hard work because it is. It takes a lot of effort to support a a child and with the amount of visits or mental health treatment. So I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea that it's just going to be this walk in the park. It's not. But if you have a strong agency behind you that can walk you through this process, it's extremely rewarding. And it's very heartening to see our kids heal from the traumas that they've had and get that permanency outcome that we all want. Well, thank you for your time today, Natalie, and uh, thank you for everything that you've been doing for our kids. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. So I'd like to introduce everyone to Jacob. So Jacob, why don't you tell us what you do here? So I am a permanency social worker for Stanford Sierra, and that entails a lot of different responsibilities. Um, Essentially, though, in a nutshell, is I assist families who are going through the foster to adoption process. That can mean home visits, supervised visits, writing home studies, case notes. Um, So there's a lot of minute details that come in with that position. But essentially, I help families through this this process. And so how often do you see families? So when children are first placed in in a home, we come by once a week. Now, of course, if there's a need, a special need going on in the family, we we may come by more. We may come by twice a week. As the case goes on and the family becomes more stable, we might come by once every other week. And so really it just depends on the needs of the family and of the child with the home. And you mentioned home studies. Can you explain what that is? A home study, it is a detailed record of your whole life. So when we are talking to county workers who are interested in placing a child in our home, they want to have kind of a basic background of the family. Um, This is where home studies come in. So we do interviews with the families. So if there's a couple that's coming in, we'll do individual interviews. We'll do couple interviews. We'll ask questions, you know, really about their childhood through their adulthood and challenges that they've overcome. And this way, this gives the county workers an idea of what kind of family they're looking into and kind of assess whether or not the child that they're thinking of would be a good placement for this home, for this family. 
So it's really about finding out where family strengths are and then where their areas of growth are. Absolutely, absolutely. Gotcha. You know, it's interesting. Everyone always says, oh, you know, nothing's ever happened in my life. It's been pretty boring. <laughs> but the reality is, is most people have overcome incredible trials and have had wonderful successes. And we really try to pinpoint what those are. And so in working with kids, what what sort of stuff do you do with the kids themselves, like directly with the kids when you go out to do home visits? You know, I always want to check in with the child. If they're old enough to talk, you know, sometimes we have a lot of babies on our caseload, then it's hard to have a full-on conversation with a four-month-old. But if they're, the child's older, I like to spend time talking with the child and seeing how the placement is going with them. If they like the family, if they have some concerns, we really want the placement to go as smoothly as it can for, you know, for these children. I also talk with the family. Sometimes the families can be going through um, challenges and they don't really know who to talk to. And I try to be that ear and try to be a sounding board and give advice when it's needed. So you really have to bond and connect with the family. How do you do that? Well, now a lot of that happens during the home study process. Well, it's, it's a hard thing because when we come in, we almost come in as an authority figure. Uh, the families feel that we're, we're judging them in a way. In a sense, we are. We're assessing them about how we think they would be as a potential resource family. And I, so I try to be very open with the family, try to be very warm, answer any questions that they have, explain what the process will, will look like. Because, you know, it can be very stressful if you don't know what's going to happen. So... Trying to answer those questions and relieve that stress is one of the ways how I connect with my families. And then as the case goes on and you're coming by once a week, you're kind of like that weird uncle or family member who stops <laughs> by. Um, you know, they just kind of get used to you coming by. And, um, you know, it's, it's been interesting. I've had a couple of cases where we've closed off and I'll have a family contact me a week or two later. And they're like, hey, you know, the kids are asking where you're at. Uh, what do you want me to tell them? So, you know, they kind of get used to us coming by. And the more they see us, I think the more open they become. And what percentage of cases would you say are those that would be like adoption cases versus just temporary foster care cases on your caseload? It's kind of changed over the years in that, you know, that will change from uh, worker to worker. Currently, I would say about 60 to 70 percent of the kiddos on my caseload will move towards permanency, which means legal guardianship or option. And while the other percentage will, it's just temporary placement. Sometimes that's, that goes up, sometimes that goes down. So what our families do, that foster to adopt process, is they're foster parents. And they are foster parents until the child is either reunified or uh, parental rights are terminated. And then once parental rights are terminated, we can move forward with adoption. But first and foremost, they are foster parents and it is a foster child because we want to honor uh, the birth parents, we want to honor their right as parents um, until the court says otherwise. Tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, what does it look like to honor the birth parents, or how do how do our services work to support birth families if they have the chance to get their kids back? Well, the first thing when it comes to honoring the birth parents is trying your hardest not to view them as the bad guy. It's really common in today's culture and what you hear what goes on in the news to view the parents as these bad people. And they're not. They're oftentimes they've made a mistake or things went on that they couldn't control. So the first thing I suggest my families is in their conversations in their home, 
to not talk bad about the birth parents. Another thing that we do is oftentimes the children come with supervised visits with their parents. So they may be able to see their parents once or twice a week, sometimes three times a week for maybe an hour, two hours. And during those visits, we hope when it's appropriate to do so that our foster parents can talk to the birth parents and try to build some type of relationship. Once again, you know, each case is different. I've had some families where they've been very open with their parents and asking them questions. Um, I had one family where they went to the birth parents are like, hey, you know, how do you want me to be uh, washing, you know, the child's hair? What's the best products to be using? And it really kind of threw the birth parents off because previously they hadn't been treated with that type of respect. And so they were really happy that they can still be seen as a parent by the foster parents. Now, of course, every situation is different. Sometimes we're not able to do that. But when possible, I hope that my, my families could talk with the birth parents because when we talk about the children as they grow up, you know, they're going to have questions about their birth parents and they're going to want to know what kind of person they are. And I hope that our, our foster and maybe adoptive parents would be able to answer those questions uh, positively. That sounds like a lot of really good work. I do want to make sure I'm not taking up too much time from your day today. So I guess mm -hmm. if I had to have one final question for you, would be what would you say off the top of your head, can you think of like the biggest need to know for any person that is thinking about doing foster care? Wow, I could spend an hour answering that question. Maybe um, we'll have you do that later. <laughs> you know, it's a great question. One of the things I hope my fam if any family that's thinking about coming to the process, it won't be easy. Your good days are going to be wonderful. You're going to have some wonderful, joyous days. There will be some hard days. You will have to change your schedule around, and that, that does come with, you know, visits, doctor's appointments. But... It's really, it's an incredible process, and these children, they're wonderful. And so I hope that any family that's interested in coming to the process would know, if you don't think you can do it, I bet you you can. I bet you you have strengths and things that you're really just really good at that you can bring into the life of a foster child. So it, I guess I want any family to know that while it's not an easy process, it is a wonderful process. Thank you so much for your time today, Jacob. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure the people who are listening do too. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that my colleagues were able to answer some of the questions that you might have about becoming a resource parent and what that really means. I also hope that you're able to come back and learn more about the amazing things that they do, our kids and our families do. We want to hear from you and answer your questions. So you can submit those on our Facebook page, you can email us at pfcrecruitment at youthsolutions.org, or you can give us a call at 916-368-5114. We're happy to present information to clubs, churches, or your places of business, and whenever you're ready to take the first steps and become a resource parent, we'll be here to help you thrive. Thank you again, and I hope you have a great day.